Chapter 5, Section 1 of Manual of Egyptian Archaeology and Guide to the Study of Antiquities in Egypt by Gaston Maspero. Translated by Amelia B. Edwards. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Chapter 5, The Industrial Arts. I have treated briefly of the noble arts. It remains to say something of the industrial arts. All classes of society in Egypt were, from an early period, imbued with the love of luxury and with a taste for the beautiful living or dead the egyptian desired to have jewels and costly amulets upon his person and to be surrounded by choice furniture and elegant utensils the objects of his daily use must be distinguished if not by richness of material at least by grace of form and in order to satisfy his requirements the clay the stone the metals the woods and other products of distant lands were laid under contribution. Section 1. Stone, Clay, and Glass. It is impossible to pass through a gallery of Egyptian antiquities without being surprised by the prodigious number of small objects in Pietra Jura which have survived till the present time. As yet we have found neither the diamond, the ruby, nor the sapphire, but with these exceptions the domain of the lapidary was almost as extensive as at the present day. That domain included the amethyst, the emerald, the garnet, the aquamarine, the chrysopace, the innumerable varieties of agate and jasper, lapis lazuli, felspar, obsidian, also various rocks such as granite, serpentine and porphyry, certain fossils as yellow amber and some kinds of turquoise, organic remains as coral, mother of pearl and pearls, metallic ores and carbonates such as hematite and malachite, and the calcite or oriental turquoise these substances were for the most part cut in the shape of round square oval spindle-shaped pear-shaped or lozenge-shaped beads strung and arranged row above row these beads were made into necklaces and are picked up by myriads in the sands of the great cemeteries of memphis erment ekmim and abydos the perfection with which many are cut the deftness with which they are pierced and the beauty of the polish do honour to the craftsmen who made them but their skill did not end here with the point saw drill and grindstone they finished these materials into an infinity of shapes hearts human fingers serpents animals images of divinities all these were amulets and they were probably less valued for the charm of the workmanship than for the supernatural virtues which they were supposed to possess the girdle buckle in carnelian symbolized the blood of isis and washed away the sins of the wearer the frog was emblematic of renewed birth the little lotus flower column in green felspar typified the divine gift of eternal youth the uat or sacred eye tied to the wrist or arm by a slender string protected against the evil eye against words spoken in envy or anger and against the bites of serpents commerce dispersed these objects throughout all parts of the ancient world and many of them especially those which represented the sacred beetle were imitated abroad by the phoenicians and syrians and by the craftsmen of greece asia minor Etruria, and sardinia this insect was called kepha in egyptian and its name was supposed to be derived from the root kephra to become by an obvious play upon words the beetle was made the emblem of terrestrial life and of the successive becomings or developments of man in the life to come the scarabus amulet is therefore a symbol of duration present or future 
and to wear one was to provide against annihilation a thousand mystic meanings were evolved from this first idea each in some subtle sense connected with one or other of the daily acts or usages of life so that scarabai were multiplied ad infinitum they are found in all materials and sizes some having hawks heads some with rams heads some with heads of men or bulls some are wrought or inscribed on the underside others are left flat and plain underneath and others again but vaguely recall the form of the insect and are called scaraboids these amulets appeared longwise the whole being large enough to admit the passage of a fine wire of bronze or silver or of a thread for suspension the larger sort were regarded as images of the heart these having outspread wings attached were fastened to the breast of the mummy and are inscribed on the underside with a prayer adjuring the heart not to bear witness against the deceased at the day of judgment in order to be still more efficacious some scenes of adoration were occasionally added to the formula for example the disc of the moon adorned by two apes upon the shoulder two squatting figures of amen upon the wing sheaths on the flat reverse a representation of the boat of the sun and below the boat osiris mummified squatting between isis and nephthys who overshadow him with their wings the small scarabs having begun as phylacteries ended by becoming mere ornaments without any kind of religious meaning just as crosses are now worn without thought of significance by the women of our own day they were set as rings as necklace pendants as earrings and as bracelets the underside is often plain but is more commonly ornamented with incised designs which involve no kind of modelling relief cutting properly so called as in cameo cutting was unknown to egyptian lapidaries before the greek period scarabae and subjects engraved on them have not as yet been fully classified and catalogued the subjects consist of simple combinations of lines of scrolls of interlacings without any precise signification of symbols to which the owner attached a mysterious meaning unknown to everyone but himself of names and titles of individuals of royal ovals which are historically interesting of good wishes of pious ejaculations and of magic formulae the earliest examples known date from the fourth dynasty and are small and fine sometimes six dynasty scarabs are of obsidian and crystal and early middle kingdom scarabs of amethyst emerald or even garnet from the time of the eighteenth dynasty scarabs may be counted by millions and the execution is more or less fine according to the hardness of the stone this holds good for amulets of all kinds the hippopotamus heads the hearts the barbirds which one picked up towed to the south of thebes are barely roughed out the amethyst and green felspar of which they are made having presented an almost unconquerable resistance to the point saw drill and wheel the belt buckles angles and headrests in red jasper carnelian and hematite are on the contrary finished to the minutest details notwithstanding that carnelian and red jasper are even harder than green felspar lapis lazuli is insufficiently homogeneous almost as hard as felspar and seems as if it were incapable of being finely worked yet the egyptians have used it for images of certain goddesses isis nephthys neith sekhet which are marvels of delicate cutting the modelling of the forms is carried out as boldly as if the material were more trustworthy and the features lose none of their excellence if examined under a magnifying glass for the most part however a different treatment was adopted instead of lavishing high finish upon the relief it was obtained in a more summary way the details of individual parts being sacrificed to the general effect those features of the face which project and those which retire are strongly accentuated 
the thickness of the neck, the swell of the breast and shoulder, the slenderness of the waist, the fullness of the hips, are all exaggerated. The feet and hands are also slightly enlarged. The treatment is based upon a system, the results being boldly yet judiciously calculated. When the object has to be sculptured in miniature, a mathematical reduction of the model is not so happy in its effect as might be supposed. The head loses character, the neck looks too weak, the bust is reduced to a cylinder with a slightly uneven surface. The feet do not look strong enough to support the weight of the body. The principal lines are not sufficiently distinct from the secondary lines. By suppressing most of the accessory forms and developing those most essential to the expression, the Egyptians steered clear of the danger of producing insignificant statuettes. The eye instinctively tones down whatever is too forcible and supplies what is lacking. Thanks to the subtle devices of the ancient craftsmen, a tiny statuette of this or that divinity, measuring scarcely an inch and a quarter in height, has almost the breadth and dignity of a colossus. The earthly goods of the gods and the dead were mostly in solid stone. I have elsewhere described the little funerary obelisks, the altar bases, the statues and the tables of offerings found in tombs of the ancient empire. These tables were made of alabaster and limestone during the pyramid period, of granite or red sandstone under the Theban kings, and of basalt or serpentine from the time of the 26th dynasty. But the fashions were not canonical, all stones being found in all periods. Some offering tables are mere flat discs, or discs very slightly hollowed. Others are rectangular, and are sculptured in relief, with a surface of loaves, vases, fruits, and quarters of beef and gazelle. In one instance, the table offering of Situ, the libations, instead of running off, fell into a square basin which is marked off in divisions, showing the height of the Nile at different seasons of the year in the reservoirs of Memphis. Namely, 23 cubits in summer during the inundation, 23 in autumn and early winter, and 22 at the close of winter and in springtime. In these various patterns, there was little beauty. Yet one offering table found at Saqqara is a real work of art. It is of alabaster. Two lions, standing side by side, support a sloping rectangular tablet, whence the libation ran off by a small channel into a vase placed between the tails of the lions. The alabaster geese, found at Lisht, are not without artistic merit. They are cut lengthwise down the middle and hollowed out in the fashion of a box. Those which I have seen elsewhere, and generally speaking, all simulcra of offerings, as loaves, cakes, heads of oxen or gazelles, bunches of black grapes and the like, in carved and painted limestone, are of doubtful taste and clumsy execution. They are not very common, and I have met with them only in tombs of the 5th and 12th dynasties. Quote, Canopic. End quote. Vases, on the contrary, were always carefully wrought. They were generally made in two kinds of stone, limestone and alabaster, but the heads which surmounted them were often of painted wood. The canopic vases of Pepi I are of alabaster, and those of a king buried in the southernmost pyramid of Lisht are also of alabaster, as are the human heads upon the lids. One, indeed, is of such fine execution that I can only compare it with that of the statue of Khafra. The most ancient funerary statuettes yet found, those namely of the 11th dynasty, are of alabaster, like the canopic vases. But from the time of the 13th dynasty, they were cut in compact limestone. The workmanship is very unequal in quality. Some are real chefs de oeuvre, and reproduce the physiognomy of the deceased as faithfully as a portrait statue. Lastly, there are the perfume vases, 
which complete the list of objects found in temples and tombs. The names of these vases are far from being satisfactorily established, and most of the special designations furnished in the texts as yet remain without equivalents in our language. The greater number were of alabaster, turned and polished. Some are heavy and ugly, while others are distinguished by an elegance and diversity of form, which do honour to the inventive talent of the craftsman. Many are spindle-shaped and pointed at the end, or round in the body, narrow in the neck, and flat at the bottom. They are unornamented except, perhaps, by the two lotus-bud handles, or two lion's heads, or perhaps a little female head just at the rise of the neck. The smallest of these vases were not intended for liquids, but for pomades, medicinal ointments, and salves made with honey. Some of the more important series comprise large-bodied flasks with an upright cylindrical neck and a flat cover. In these, the Egyptians kept the antimony powder with which they darkened their eyes and eyebrows. The coal pot was a universal toilet requisite, perhaps the only one commonly used by all classes of society. When designing it, the craftsman gave free play to his fancy, borrowing forms of men, plants and animals for its adornment. Now it appears in the guise of a full-blown lotus. Now it is a hedgehog, a hawk, a monkey clasping a column to its breast, or climbing up the side of a jar, a grotesque figure of the god Bez, a kneeling woman whose scooped-out body contained the powder, a young girl carrying a wine jar. Once started upon this path, the imagination of the artist's knew no limits. As for materials, everything was made to serve in turn. Granite, diorite, breccia, red jade, alabaster, and soft limestone, which lent itself more readily to caprices of form. Finally, a still more plastic and facile substance, clay, painted and glazed. It was not for want of material that the art of modelling and baking clays failed to be as fully developed in Egypt as in Greece. The valley of the Nile is rich in a fine and ductile potter's clay, with which the happiest results might have been achieved had the native craftsman taken the trouble to prepare it with due care. Metals and hard stone were, however, always preferred for objects of luxury. The potter was fain, therefore, to be content with supplying only the commonest needs of household and daily life. He was wont to take whatever clay happened to be nearest to the place where he was working, and this clay was habitually badly washed, badly kneaded, and fashioned with the finger upon a primitive wheel worked by the hand. The firing was equally careless. Some pieces were barely heated at all, and melted it they came into contact with water, while others were as hard as tiles. All tombs of the ancient empire contained vases of red or yellow ware, often mixed, like the clay of bricks, with finely chopped straw or weeds. These are mostly large, solid jars with oval bodies, short necks, and wide mouths, but having neither foot nor handles. With them are also found pipkins and pots, in which to store the dead man's provisions, bowls more or less shallow, and flat plates, such as are still used by the fellahin. The poorer folk sometimes buried miniature table and kitchen services with their dead, as being less costly than full-sized vessels. The surface is seldom glazed, seldom smooth and lustrous, but is ordinarily covered with a coat of whitish unbaked paint, which scales off at a touch. Upon this surface there is neither incised design nor ornament in relief, nor any kind of inscription, but merely some four or five parallel lines in red, black, or yellow, round the neck. The pottery of the earliest Theban dynasties, which I have collected at El Kozam and Gebelin, is more carefully wrought than the pottery of the Memphite period. It may be classified under two heads. The first comprises plain, smooth-bodied vases, black below and dark red above. On examining this ware, 
where broken we see that the colour was mixed with the clay during the kneading and that the two zones were separately prepared roughly joined and then uniformly glazed the second class comprises vases of various and sometimes eccentric forms moulded of red or tawny clay some are large cylinders closed at one end others are flat others oblong and boat-shaped others like cruets joined together two and two yet with no channel of communication the ornamentation is carried over the whole surface and generally consists of straight parallel lines cross lines zigzags dotted lines or small crosses and lines in geometrical combination all these patterns being in white when the ground is red or in reddish brown when the ground is yellow or whitish now and then we find figures of men and animals interspersed among the geometrical combinations the drawing is rude almost childish and it is difficult to tell whether the subjects represent herds of antelopes or scenes of gazelle hunting the craftsmen who produced these rude attempts were nevertheless contemporary with the artists who decorated the rock-cut tombs at beni hassan as regards the period of egypt's greatest military conquests the theban tombs of that age have supplied objects enough to stock a museum of pottery but unfortunately the types are very uninteresting to begin with we find hand-made sepulchral statues modelled in summary fashion from an oblong lump of clay a pinch of the craftsman's fingers brought out the nose two tiny knobs and two little stumps separately modelled and stuck on represented the eyes and arms the better sort of figures were pressed in moulds of baked clay of which several specimens have been found they were generally moulded in one piece then lightly touched up then baked and lastly on coming out of the oven were painted red yellow or white and inscribed with the pen some are of very good style and almost equal those made in limestone the ushabtiu of the scribe hori and those of the priest horuta saiti found at hawara show what the egyptians could have achieved in this branch of the art if they had cared to cultivate it funerary cones were objects purely devotional and the most consummate art could have done nothing to make them elegant a funerary cone consists of a long conical mass of clay stamped at the larger end with a few rows of hieroglyphs stating the name parentage and titles of the deceased the whole surface being coated with a whitish wash these are simulcra of votive cakes intended for the eternal nourishment of the double many of the vases buried in tombs of this period are painted to imitate alabaster granite basalt bronze or even gold and were cheap substitutes for those vases made in precious materials which wealthy mourners were wont to lavish on their dead among those especially intended to contain water or flowers some are covered with designs drawn in red and black such as concentric lines and circles meanders religious emblems cross lines resembling network festoons of flowers and buds and long leafy stems carried downward from the neck to the body of the vase and upward from the body of the vase to the neck those in the tombs of Semnetmu were decorated on one side with a large necklace or collar like the collars found upon mummies painted in very bright colours to simulate natural flowers or enamels canopic vases in baked clay though rarely met with under the eighteenth dynasty became more and more common as the prosperity of thebes declined the heads upon the lids are for the most part prettily turned especially the human heads modelled with the hand scooped out to diminish the weight and then slowly baked each was finally painted with the colours especially pertaining to the genius whose head was represented towards the time of the twentieth dynasty it became customary to enclose the bodies of sacred animals in vases of this type those found near ekmim contain jackals and hawks those of saqqara are devoted to serpents eggs and mummified rats those of abydos held the sacred ibis these last are by far the finest on the body of the vase the protecting goddess kuit is depicted with outspread wings while horus and thoth are seen presenting the bandage and ungent vase 
the whole subject being painted in blue and red upon a white ground from the time of the greek domination the national poverty being always on the increase baked clay was much used for coffins as well as for canopic vases in the isthmus of suez at anas el menene in the fayum at asan and in nubia we find whole cemeteries in which the sarcophagi are made of baked clay some are like oblong boxes rounded at each end with the saddle-back lid some are in human form but barbarous in style the heads being surmounted by a pudding-shaped imitation of the ancient egyptian headdress and the features indicated by two or three strokes of the modelling tool or the thumb two little lumps of clay stuck awkwardly upon the breast indicate the coffin of a woman even in these last days of egyptian civilization it was only the coarsest objects which were left of the natural hue of the baked clay as of old the surfaces were as a rule overlaid with a coat of colour or with a richly gilded glaze glass was known to the egyptians from the remotest period and glass blowing is represented in tombs which date from some thousands of years before our era the craftsman seated before the furnace takes up a small quantity of the fused substance upon the end of his cane and blows it circumspectly taking care to keep in contact with the flame so that it may not harden during the operation chemical analysis shows the constituent parts of egyptian glass to have been nearly identical with our own but it contains besides silex lime alumina and soda a relatively large proportion of extraneous substances as copper oxide of iron and oxide of manganese which they apparently knew not how to eliminate hence egyptian glass is scarcely ever colourless but inclines to an uncertain shade of yellow or green some ill-made pieces are so utterly decomposed that they flake away or fall to iridescent dust at the lightest touch others have suffered little from time or damp but are streaky and full of bubbles a few are however perfectly homogeneous and limpid colourless glass was not esteemed by the egyptians as it is by ourselves whether opaque or transparent they preferred it coloured the dyes were obtained by mixing metallic oxides with the ordinary ingredients that is to say copper and cobalt for the blues copperas for the greens manganese for the violets and browns iron for the yellows and lead or tin for the whites one variety of red contains thirty per cent of bronze and becomes coated with verdigris if exposed to damp all this chemistry was empirical and acquired by instinct finding the necessary elements at hand or being supplied with them from a distance they made use of them at hazard and without being too certain of obtaining the effects they sought many of their most harmonious combinations were due to accident and they could not reproduce them at will the masses which they obtained by these unscientific means were nevertheless of very considerable dimensions the classic authors tell of stelae sarcophagi and columns made in one piece ordinarily however glass was used only for small objects and above all for counterfeiting precious stones however cheaply they may have been sold in the egyptian market these small objects were not accessible to all the world the glass workers imitated the emerald jasper lapis lazuli and carnelian to such perfection that even now we are sometimes embarrassed to distinguish the real stones from the false the glass was pressed into moulds made of stone or limestone cut to the forms required as beads discs rings pendants rods and plaques covered with figures of men and animals gods and goddesses eyes and eyebrows for the faces of statues in stone or bronze were likewise made of glass as also bracelets glass was inserted into the hollows of incised hieroglyphs and the hieroglyphs were also cut out in glass in this manner whole inscriptions were composed and let into wood stone or metal the two mummy cases which enclose the body of Netempt, mother of the pharaoh herhor seaman are decorated in this style except the headdress of the effigy and some minor details 
these cases are gilded all over the texts and principal part of the ornamentation being formed of glass enamels which stand out in brilliant contrast with the dead gold ground many fayum mummies are coated with plaster or stucco the texts and religious designs which are generally painted being formed of glass enamels encrusted upon the surface of the plaster some of the largest subjects are made of pieces of glass joined together and retouched with the chisel in imitation of bas-relief thus the face hands and feet of the goddess ma are done in turquoise blue her headdress in dark blue her feather in alternate stripes of blue and yellow and her raiment in deep red upon a wooden shrine recently discovered in the neighbourhood of daphne and upon a fragment of mummy case in the museum of turin the hieroglyphic forms of many-coloured glass are inlaid upon the sombre ground of the wood the general effect being inconceivably rich and brilliant glass filigrees engraved glass cut glass soldered glass glass imitations of wood of straw and of string were all known to the egyptians of old i have under my hand at this present moment a square rod formed of innumerable threads of coloured glass fused into one solid body which gives the royal oval of one of the amen m hats at the part where it is cut through the design is carried through the whole length of the rod and wherever that rod may be cut the royal oval appeared one glass case in the Gizeh museum is entirely stocked with small objects in coloured glass here we see an ape on all fours smelling some large fruit which lies upon the ground yonder a woman's head front face upon a white or green ground surrounded by a red border most of the plaques represent only rosettes stars and single flowers or posies one of the smallest represents a black and white apis walking the work being so delicate that it loses none of its effect under the magnifying glass the greater number of these objects date from and after the first Saiti dynasty but excavations in thebes and tel el amana have proved that the manufacture of coloured glass prevailed in egypt earlier than the tenth century before our era at kurnet Marei, and sheik abd el gurneh there have been found not only amulets for the use of the dead such as colonnettes hearts mystic eyes hippopotami walking erect and ducks in pairs done in particoloured pastes red blue and yellow but also vases of a type which we have been accustomed to regard as of Phoenician and Cypriot manufacture. Here, for example, is a little Enacho of a light blue semi-opaque glass. The inscription in the name of Thosmes III, the ovals on the neck and the palm fronds on the body of the vase being in yellow. Here again is a lenticular file, three and a quarter inches in height, the ground colour of a deep ocean blue, admirably pure and intense, upon which a fern-leaf pattern in yellow stands out both boldly and delicately a yellow runs round the rim and two little handles of light green are attached to the neck a miniature amphora of the same height is of a dark semi-transparent olive green a zone of blue and yellow zigzags bounded above and below by yellow bands encircles the body of the vase at the part of its largest circumference the handles are of pale green and the thread around the lip is pale blue princess nekikonsu had beside her in the vault at Deir el bahari some glass goblets of similar work seven were in whole colours light green and blue four were of black glass spotted with white one only was decorated with many-coloured fronds arranged in two rows the national glassworks were therefore in full operation during the time of the great theban dynasties huge piles of scoriae mixed with slag yet mark the spot where their furnishes were stationed at tel alamara the ramesseum at el kab and at the tel of eshmunian the egyptians also enamelled stone one half at least of the scarabae cylinders and amulets contained in our museums are of limestone or schist covered with a coloured glaze doubtless the common clay seemed to them inappropriate to this kind of decoration for they substituted in its place various sorts of earth some white and sandy another sort brown and fine 
which they obtained by the pulverisation of a particular kind of limestone found in the neighbourhood of Kene, Luxor, and Aswan, and a third sort, reddish in tone, and mixed with powdered sandstone and brick dust. These various substances are known by the, equally inexact, names of Egyptian porcelain and Egyptian facients. The older specimens, which are hardly glazed at all, are coated with an excessively thin slip. This vitreous matter has, however, generally settled into the hollows of the hieroglyphs or figures, where its lustre stands out in strong contrast with the dead surface of the surrounding parts. The colour most frequently in use under the ancient dynasties was green, but yellow, red, brown, violet, and blue were not disdained. Blue predominated in the Theban factories from the earliest beginning of the Middle Empire. This blue was brilliant, yet tender, in imitation of turquoise or lapis lazuli. The Giza Museum formerly contained three hippopotamuses of this shade, discovered in the tomb of Entef at Dra Ebel Negeh. One was lying down, the two others were standing in the marshes, their bodies being covered by the potter with pen and ink sketches of reeds and lotus plants, amid which hover birds and butterflies. This was his naive way of depicting the animal amid his natural surroundings. The blue is splendid, and we must overleap twenty centuries before we again find so pure a colour among the funerary statuettes of Deir el-Bahari. Green reappears under the Sati dynasties, but paler than that of more ancient times, and it prevailed in the north of Egypt at Memphis, Bubastis, and Sais, without entirely banishing the blue. The other colours before mentioned were in current use for not more than four or five centuries, that is to say from the time of Ahmes I to the time of the Ramessides. It was then, and only then, that a shabbed hue of white or red glaze rosettes and lotus flowers in yellow red and violet and particoloured coal pots abounded the potters of the time of amenhotep the third affected greys and violets the olive-shaped amulets which are inscribed with the names of this pharaoh and the princesses of his family are decorated with pale blue hieroglyphics upon a delicate mauve ground the vase of queen t in the giza collection is of grey and blue with ornaments in two colours round the neck the fabrication of many-coloured enamel seems to have attained its greatest development under Kuanaten. At all events, it was at Tel al Amana that I found the brightest and most delicately fashioned specimens, such as yellow, green, and violet rings, blue and white florets, fish, lutes, figs, and bunches of grapes. One little statue of Horus has a red face and a blue body. A ring bezel bears the name of the king in violet upon a ground of light blue. However restricted the space, the various colours are laid in with so sure a hand that they never run one into the other but stand out separately and vividly. A vase to contain antimony powder, chased and mounted on a pierced stand, is glazed with reddish-brown. Another, in the shape of a mitred hawk, is blue, picked out with black spots. It belonged, of old, to Ames I. A third, hollowed out of the body of an energetic little hedgehog, is of a changeable green. A pharaoh's head, in dead blue, wears a claft, with dark blue stripes. Fine as these pieces are, the chef d'oeuvre of the series is a statuette of one Tamez, first prophet of Amen, now in the Giza Museum. The hieroglyphic inscriptions, as well as the details of the mummy bandages, are chased in relief upon a white ground of admirable smoothness, afterwards filled in with enamel. The face and hands are of turquoise blue. The headdress is yellow with violet stripes. The hieroglyphic characters of the inscription and the vulture, with outspread wings upon the breast of the figure, are also violet. The whole is delicate, brilliant, and harmonious. Not a flaw mars the purity of the contours, or the clearness of the lines. Glazed pottery was common from the earliest times. Cups with a foot, 
blue bowls rounded at the bottom and decorated in black ink with mystic eyes lotus flowers fissures and palm leaves date as a rule from the eighteenth nineteenth or twentieth dynasties lenticular ampullae coated with a greenish glaze flanked by two crouching monkeys for handles decorated along the edge with pearl or egg-shaped ornaments and round the body with elaborate collars belong almost without exception to the reigns of apries and amasis sistrum handles saucers drinking cups in the form of half-blown lotus plates dishes in short all vessels in common use were required to be not only easy to keep clean but pleasant to look upon did they carry their taste for enamelled ware so far as to cover the walls of their houses with glazed tiles upon this point we can pronounce neither affirmatively nor negatively the few examples of this kind of decoration which we possess being all from royal buildings upon a yellow brick we have the family name and car name of pepi the first upon a green brick the name of rameses the third upon certain red and white fragments the names of seti the first and sheshonk up to the present century one of the chambers in the step pyramid at Saqqara yet retained its mural decoration of glazed ware for three-fourths of the wall surface it was covered with green tiles oblong in shape flat at the back and slightly convex on the face a square tenon pierced through with a hole large enough to receive a wooden rod served to fix them together in horizontal pyramid of rows the three rows which frame in the doorway are inscribed with the titles of an unclassed pharaoh belonging to one of the first memphite dynasties the hieroglyphs are relieved in blue red green and yellow upon a tawny ground twenty centuries later rameses the third originated a new style at tel el yawadeh this time the question of ornamentation concerned not a single chamber but a whole temple the mass of the building was of limestone and alabaster but the pictorial subjects instead of being sculptured according to the custom were of a kind of mosaic made with almost equal parts of stone tesserae and glazed ware the most frequent item in the scheme of decoration was a roundel moulded on a sandy frit coated with blue or grey slip upon which is a cream-coloured rosette some of these rosettes are framed in geometrical designs or spiderweb patterns some represent open flowers the central boss is in relief the petals and tracery are encrusted in the mass these roundels which are of various diameters ranging from three-eighths of an inch to four inches were fixed to the walls by means of a very fine cement they were used to form many different designs as scrolls foliage and parallel fillets such as may be seen on the foot of an altar and the base of a column preserved in the giza museum the royal ovals were mostly in one piece so also were the figures the details either incised or modelled upon the clay before firing were afterwards painted with such colours as might be suitable the lotus flowers and leaves which were carried along the bottom of the walls or the length of the cornices were on the contrary made up of independent pieces each colour being a separate morsel cut to fit exactly into the pieces by which it was surrounded this temple was rifled at the beginning of the present century and some figures of prisoners bought thence have been in the louvre collection ever since the time of champillon all that remained of the building and its decoration was demolished a few years ago by certain dealers in antiquities and the debris are now dispersed in all directions mariette though with great difficulty recovered some of the more important fragments such as the name of rameses the third which dates the building some borderings of lotus flowers and birds with human hands and some heads of asiatic and negro prisoners the destruction of this monument is the more grievous because the egyptians cannot have constructed many after the same type glazed bricks painted tiles and enamelled mosaics are readily injured and in the judgment of a people enamoured of stability and eternity that would be the gravest of radical defects End of chapter 5, section 1. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, 
Gold Coast, Australia.